You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. Welcome to our Living for the Cruise series. Over the past 40 years, since his breakout starring role in the 1983 comedy Risky Business, one of our most enduring movie stars has been Thomas Mapother IV, otherwise known as Tom Cruise. He has excelled in a variety of genres, but most recently mainly in action, and just last year he starred in the biggest hit of his career, Top Gun Maverick. Well, as a follow-up this year, we will see his return to the beloved Mission Impossible franchise, once again playing IMF agent Ethan Hunt. Over the next several months, I will be revisiting one notable Tom Cruise movie each month, and each from a different era of his career, culminating with the July 14th U.S. release of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, Part 1. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which came out in 2023 and was directed by Christopher McQuarrie. It stars Tom Cruise, Haley Atwell, Ving Rames, Simon Pegg, Rebecca Ferguson, Isai Morales, Vanessa Kirby, Palm Clementif, Carrie Elways, Shay Wiggum, Greg Tarzan Davis, and Henry Zerny. The genre would be spy action thriller. The world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. It's been a long time, friend. You've no idea the power I represent. It knows your story and how it ends. Ethan, what's your objective? What's your ultimate objective? Your life will always matter more to me than my own. None of our lives can matter more than this mission. I don't accept that. This movie was quite the ride, though I left it with two conflicted thoughts. One, it was engaging, funny, and exciting for most of its 165-minute runtime. It moved well, and from a pure stimulation standpoint, I got my money's worth. Number two, there was not enough story here to sustain its runtime, nor to necessitate a part two. From a pure storytelling standpoint, I'm not sure if I got my money's worth. Overall, I feel that it's a net positive, as this movie is just extremely well-crafted and well-paced. Co-directors Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise, if we're being honest here, (laughs) have crafted yet another chapter for what is definitely one of the best film franchises out there by once again raising the bar when it comes to jaw-dropping stunts, gorgeous location work, clever spy-based scenarios, and even in this instance, some legit commentary on the state of the world. And the money is up there on the screen. There are some sequences here which just defy explanation for how they could possibly be pulled off. There's a tangible quality there, which is impressive. Just as an example, you can't help but wince at some crunching fights occurring within very cramped alleys in Venice at one sequence between our hero and top henchwoman Paris, played adeptly by Palm Clementif, who kind of steals the movie. 
Interestingly, all of this tangible action is actually servicing a plot centered around a completely digital, dare I say, amorphous threat, which is the entity. A rogue AI, artificial intelligence, who serves as the film's omniscient central villain. The villain also has a couple of human reps on the ground, including the aforementioned Paris and the menacing rogue badass Gabriel, effectively played by Isai Morales. His character here provides a strong physical foil for Ethan, and they also have a history, because of course they would, right? Likely the most prominent new character here, though, is Grace, played by Haley Atwell. She is genuinely good here, playing a top-flight independent thief who gets inadvertently embroiled in the overall plot as she has initially stolen the main MacGuffin, which is a mysterious key which comes in two parts. She pretty much steals it from Ethan, even as he's trying to steal it within an airport, and what results is a very lively cat-and-mouse game between the two. Also returning from the greater IMF team are delightful stalwarts Luther, played by Ving Rhames, and Benji, played by Simon Pegg. And, well, sort of, I don't think she's actually part of the IMF, though she is aligned with them, Ilsa, played fiercely by Rebecca Ferguson, who once again holds her own in the action department with Cruz. The supporting cast is also filled out with Vanessa Kirby, briefly returning as the White Widow, that mysterious arms dealer who seems to be playing both sides. Also, Carrie Elways joins as a CIA bigwig, bringing sufficient smarm, as he always does. There's also an enjoyably exasperated Shea Wiggum as a government agent with the thankless task of tracking down Ethan Hunt. And the vaunted return of one of my personal favorites from this franchise, Kittredge, played once again with clipped voice delight by the invaluable Henry Zerny. Zerny was one of the best parts of that very first Mission Impossible movie, previous episode, which came out back in 96. And it's a kick to watch him return and verbally spar with Cruz once again. Our lives are the sum of our choices, and we cannot escape the past. Ethan? This mission of yours is going to cost you dearly. The entire narrative has a relatively straightforward structure with four basic acts, each section mainly taking place in one distinct location and basically revolving around one extended set piece. Everything is orchestrated elegantly, and Macquarie, along with editor Eddie Hamilton, who was also invaluable to the success of Top Gun Maverick last year, they both ensure a brisk pace, with increasing action stakes as the story progresses. As featured prominently in the marketing for this movie, there's also an extended train-based action sequence here, which not only features some jaw-dropping stunts with crews, but also utilizes some very impressive visual effects. Now, whether they actually used a real train to pull this off, I couldn't quite be sure, I'm assuming they did, but it all looks very convincing and quite dangerous. Okay, don't look out. Listen, don't look out. Look at me. Look at me. Now, I'm going to jump across and you're going to wait here. Grace. Grace, you have to let go. Grace, you got to let me go. you got to let me jump across or we're going to die. Do you trust me? you got to trust me or not? you got to trust me. your hand, you gotta jump. Don't look up. Look at me. Look at me. Trust me. I won't let you fall. I promise. We're almost there. Come on. I won't let you fall. Jump, Chris. Jump. You gotta trust me. Jump, please. And yet that said, there seemed to be a concerted effort to not resolve this story by the end of this movie so as to leave the audience hanging for a part two, which is slated to come out next year. The overall plot actually does not move that much. What we're left with at the very end is not far off from what we were introduced in the beginning. I just personally found that a bit frustrating. Now, maybe it's just me, 
But it kind of nagged at me watching this movie end, thinking that with 160 plus minutes of runtime, that we actually had plenty of time to resolve this story in that time. I'm torn because I enjoyed it. And the movie doesn't drag either. Simply put, you could have bottled up this entire story with its focus being on just one simple MacGuffin, changing hands a few times, that's basically what happens, this could have easily comprised just the first half of a James Bond movie, or even a previous Ethan Hunt adventure. It was obviously a conscious choice on the part of Macquarie and Cruz, and it likely allowed for them to create two hit movies instead of just one. I mean, I get it. It's a business. Overall, I still quite enjoyed this. But I also feel like it's just one more example, I'm going to beat this dead horse again, it's not really a dead horse because it's still very much alive, of another Hollywood production padding its runtime somewhat. We've seen this recently with even the highest quality blockbuster product put out there, including Across the Spider-Verse, Avatar 2, The Batman, and John Wick Chapter 4. Now, these are all movies I enjoy to various degrees, but in each case, I might have enjoyed them even more if there had been more restraint on the part of the filmmakers. You know, we have been hearing all this hype lately about how Tom Cruise is on a mission to, quote, save the film industry. Well, while I am certainly rooting for him to succeed, I would personally love it if part of his mission should he accept it, <laughs> included pushing for tighter, more efficient blockbusters. I'll certainly be there opening day for Dead Reckoning Part 2, regardless. And I'll be all the more impressed if he actually brings in that entry at under two hours. Though I won't be holding my breath. And this brings me to the categories. Because this is now the concluding chapter of our ongoing Living for the Cruise series, I will start with the cruisiest moment. Tom Cruise has become such an otherworldly star to the point where many have often speculated as to whether he is in fact a real, living, breathing human being. And the cruisiest moment would be the moment in this film which most brings that speculation to light. Okay, I'm going to go in a slightly different direction here, but bear with me. My choice for this category is not any particular scene within the movie, though it is quite the scene regardless. Let's rewind back to December 2020, during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in many parts of the world, including America. This was, of course, when they were actually filming this movie throughout Europe. There were several stops and starts during production as a result of mitigation efforts to prevent cast and crew from contracting COVID at the time. Well, no one knows exactly when this happened or the exact circumstances, but apparently some crew members on the set of this movie were violating COVID rules, putting the production at risk. And what resulted was a stirring, and in my opinion, justified rant from Cruz to the rest of the crew. Leaked audio of this rant spread like wildfire throughout the interwebs. And let's just say that if you have any doubts regarding Cruz's passion for filmmaking, or the movie theatrical experience in general, well, you can remove them after giving this a listen. I'm on the phone with every studio at night. Insurance companies. Producers. And they're looking at us and using us to make their movies. We are creating thousands of jobs, you I don't ever want to see it again. Ever. And if you don't do it, you're fired. And I see you do it again, you're gone. And anyone on this crew does it. That's it. And you too. And you too. And you. Don't you ever do it again. That's it. No apologies. You can tell it to the people that are losing their home because our industry is shut down. It's not going to put food on their table or pay for their college education. That's what I sleep with every night. But yes, this is as cruisy as he gets. The next category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film because music is essential to film. If I'm being honest, this score did not quite dazzle me like other previous films, though it certainly did the job. 
Lauren Balfe returned to compose this time after delivering a very Dark Knight Hans Zimmer-like sounding score for the previous film, Fallout. Now, the music this time around doesn't sound quite as serious or as bombastic as that score did. The movie is also lighter in tone. This time around, it really kind of blends in more with what we see on screen, which is fine. And as has been the case with previous entries, the highlight is once again those opening credits. The fuse being lit, the main theme kicking in with drums and bongos. And of course, what we're seeing over the opening credits is basically a trailer for the movie, which is about to start. It's a rousing way to kick off a Mission Impossible movie, so why mess with something that's already working? The next category is Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Rebecca Ferguson's Ilsa Faust has been a standout character for this franchise since first appearing two movies prior in Rogue Nation. And likely one of my bigger criticisms for this particular movie would be not only how her character's relationship with Ethan is still ill-defined. You really don't know. You get the sense there's a romance there, but they never really lay it out. But also just how underutilized she is overall. She's not in this movie as much as I would have thought. Of course, a prime reason for that would likely be that her prominence as a character is very much supplanted by the introduction of Haley Atwell's Grace as a character herself. Haley Atwell basically becomes the second lead for much of the movie. And, yeah, unfortunately, to be fair, this is now being the seventh movie, this has always been an issue for this franchise to make sufficient room for more than one prominent female character per movie. As there have been some real memorable ones in previous movies who were never heard from again. Remember Tandy Newton's Naya from Part 2? Or Paula Patton's Jane from Ghost Protocol? Yeah. So Ferguson does have some strong moments here at least, but it's just another reminder that this has and always will remain Cruz's franchise at the end of the day. The next category would be the trailer moments. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Now, of all this film's set pieces, I would have to say that my personal favorite is the one in Rome, which kicks off roughly about a half hour into the movie. Rome itself is actually an inspired choice for a location to have such a car chase, since in many parts it is very much not a car-friendly city, with its narrow corners and cobblestone streets. And it's on those streets that we enjoy an extended chase involving Grace, who is initially being chased by Ethan... himself is being chased by government agents Briggs and Degas, 
played by Wiggum and Tarzan Davis, respectively. And also in this crazy free-for-all is Pum Clementis Paris, who is gleefully driving what seems to be a Humvee, even though there's really not any room for such a car on these type of streets. At one point, she's just barreling through traffic, going after Grace and Ethan, who are now handcuffed together in a tiny yellow Fiat. It's a fun contrast, and the stunt driving from all involved, all the actors apparently, is just spectacular enough to sell it all as feeling sufficiently real. Just a fantastic sequence. The final category would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Come on now, was there ever any doubt? It's gotta be Cruz, of course. And it goes beyond him not only being a shadow director for this movie, or his relentless promotion of it over the past year, or even the death-defying stunt work. My man Thomas Mapather III gives another sterling movie star performance here. Seven movies in, he now inhabits the role of a career super spy who relentlessly pursues his mission, yet always shows empathy for his fellow field agents. Now, as written, these movies are not always giving his character much depth nor even much of a personal life. But that doesn't really matter because whenever he's on screen, he wraps you, the audience member, right up in the chase with him. It's the way he reacts to these absurd feats which makes his character all the more human. Yes, even that crazy motorcycle stunt, which has been the centerpiece of this film's promotional campaign, the highlight for me personally was watching his reaction to how the stunt's being pulled off than actually how he's doing the stunt. For taking us on yet another exciting ride with Special Agent Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise is the MVP. Well, you can see the train, right? Yes, I see the train. What about it? And you have a parachute. You got a parachute? What do you expect me to do? Well, just, you know, jump. Just jump? Yeah. I mean, Benji, it doesn't work like that. I'm not that high. There's... There's ledges sticking out everywhere. I'm going to hit them before the parachute even opens. But even if I could get the parachute open, I don't know if I can make it across the valley and intercept and land safely on a moving train. Do you copy? Yes, I copy. Look, I'm just trying to help you, okay? I need you to take a step back and pull yourself together because I am under a lot of pressure right now. My rating for Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1, might be the longest title of the year, is four stars out of five. As much as I wanted to love this movie, I merely liked it quite a bit. For me, it's the whole part one issue, which brings it down just a bit. And if you've listened to previous episodes that I've done for Dune Part 1 or Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, you will notice that I gave them the exact same score too. As far as how this compares to the rest of the franchise, I would say that it's still a bit better than previous entry Fallout, though not on the level of the previous two before that. If I had to rank them all, I would probably still place previous episode Ghost Protocol at number one, with its follow-up Rogue Nation a close second, and this would probably place third overall. Regardless, see it. See it in Dolby if you can, like I did. And of course, yes, if you're looking to watch Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1... <laughs> so many syllables, it is now playing in theaters. And that ends another pulse-pounding review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.